Okay, I've got uh, double duty tonight, so praise God. He put me here. Okay, does everyone have a sheet? We should have a sheet. I have a tendency to be loud, so if I'm being too loud, just like, you know, cover your ears, and I'll get the, I'll, you know, try and do what I can. Okay, so we are uh, journeying, um, <laughs> journeying through the tabernacle still here, and uh, you've got a couple sheets. What you're going to need tonight is you're going to need your outline, and you're going to need the back of your song sheet. So don't toss your song sheet yet. It's got a road map on it. We're going to talk about that in one second. It's got a road map on it. Okay, we're going to be using that in just one second. Okay, let's go ahead and read the title of this message all together. Ready, set, go. Okay, the laver of bronze. Laver of bronze. This is another item in the tabernacle. And um, let's go ahead and read uh, point one together. Ready, set, go. All right, let's read that one more time. Uh, the reason I'm putting, on this, uh, putting this point on here is because after everything's said and done from this semester, this whole semester we're looking just at the detailed picture of the tabernacle. Um, and I'm a little worried that in two years from now, I mean, everyone's loving it now, it's deep. I was in my group last week and I was like, guys, how have y'all been loving this? And I'm like, dude, it's so tight. We're like diving deep. I'm a little worried in about two years, no one's going to remember anything about the tabernacle. So that's what point one's about. Point one is the takeaway for the entire semester. It's the takeaway for the entire semester. In two years, if you don't remember anything else, this is the only thing you should remember. This is is the main point you should remember. So let's read it again with that in mind. Ready, set, go. Okay, the tabernacle portrays the detailed experience of Christ. How can we say that? Let's look at our next two verses. These are the two key verses you need to make this assertion. Here we go. Two for testimony in the Word. Let's read John 1.14 and Hebrews 9.9. Ready, set, go. And then Hebrews 9.9. Ready, set, go. Okay, these verses are so incredible. John the Apostle tells us straight up in John 1.14, Jesus Christ in incarnation is the tabernacle in action. Now, some of your Bibles just say uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, the majority of translations say that. And that is true. In incarnation, Jesus dwelt among us. He lived among us. But that is not uh, all John is saying. John is using a technical term here which is the exact same word as in Hebrews 9.9, right below it. You see the first tabernacle. Exact same word in John 1.14, except now it's not a noun, it's a verb. So John does something radical. He's the only person in the entire New Testament who does this. He turns the technical term for tabernacle, which is all over the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament... If you look for tabernacle, it's all over Exodus, it's in Leviticus, it's in Numbers, it's moving. It is God's dwelling place on earth. It's where God and man can meet in oneness. John goes one step further and says, Jesus, God incarnate, is the tabernacle in action. He's the tabernacle as a verb. So amazing. 
So it's a technical term here. It's not just him dwelling on earth. It's him being the tabernacle on earth. And John's the only person who does this in the entire New Testament. He uses tabernacle as a verb five times, once in John, four times in Revelation. So awesome. So John 1.14, if someone asks you, hey, man, you guys are talking about the tabernacle as a type of Christ. How can you all say that? John 1.14. Then in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, even more radical, says when you read about the Old Testament tabernacle, you're actually reading about today. The Old Testament tabernacle is a figure for the present time. So when you're reading about that ancient tent moving around in the desert, somehow the writer of the Hebrews got the light to say, you're reading about today. You're reading about today. And what are you reading about today? Where's the laver today? Where's the lampstand today? Where's the showbread table today? Where's the bronze altar today? Where's the Ark of the Covenant today? It's all realized in Christ. Christ is the reality of all the shadows and figures in the Old Testament. So what we're, real, what we're reading about when we read about the tabernacle is a detailed roadmap of the experience of Christ. Okay, now you know, before 2007, when the first iPhone came out, people actually used to carry around maps. I don't know if anybody's ever, you know, anybody in this room seen somebody walking around with a, a, like a paper map? Okay, we got a couple people. Have you ever held a map? Okay, he's, he's held a map. No one on this side of the room has ever held a map. Okay, a couple people. So y'all know what I'm talking about. I mean, these things are like, you know, they're actually still around. You can buy one. It's unbelievable to me. Actually, we have one in our car. Where's my wife? And the other day, we've got this massive, like, 2000, I don't know what it is, 2009 road atlas wedged in between the driver console and the driver's seat. And the other day, my wife was like, why do we have this in here? Like, you know, we've got our phones. Anyways, we still got it in there. Okay, people used to buy these things maps. And, uh, you know, on a map, you're, you're portraying a lot of information. And um, some maps, eventually over time, they started uh, just highlighting, you know, points of interest. So, you know, I know some of the bros are going to New York for spring break, right? Okay, so there's some points of interest in New York you don't want to miss. And so you'd have the Guggenheim Museum, you have Central Park, you have the Empire State Building, you have the Statue of Liberty, and those are kind of highlighted, and they're called points of interest. And so it's a do not miss. If you're going to New York, man, Bro, you got to go to the Statue of Liberty. If you're going to, the, if you're going to New York, you got to go to Central Park. How could you miss that? Okay, well, the point the New Testament is telling us is the tabernacle is a map. The tabernacle is a road map of our experience of Christ in which every point is a point of interest. Every point in the tabernacle is a do not miss. Do not miss the bronze altar. That's Christ redeeming you from sin. Do not miss the labor. We're going to see that tonight. Do not miss eating Christ as the bread. Do not miss Christ shining as the light of life. Do not, Christ, do not miss Christ in his interceding prayer for God's move on earth. And definitely do not miss the Holy of Holies. So I hope this is the thing y'all remember in two years from now when every, all the details fade away. The thing you remember is the Old Testament gives me a detailed map of how to experience Christ in the present time. Amen? Amen? So tight, so tight. Okay, with that in mind, let's look at the back of our song sheet at our actual roadmap. This is the roadmap of the tabernacle. And I want to show you how John, in his gospel, shows how every item in the tabernacle is a picture of Christ. John structures his gospel around Jesus being the reality of the tabernacle. So we're just going to go through here. Get out your pen. And we're going to write some verses under each one of these items. So under the, the altar of burnt offering on the right of your page, 
This is the first thing we got to when you come into the tabernacle. Under that, write John 1.29. John 1.29. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was looking at Jesus. Jesus is that Lamb that was sacrificed for our sin to take it away. If you see that, you will praise God. Your sin is gone. Why is it gone? Because Jesus is the reality of the altar of burnt offerings. So awesome. Okay, the laver. The laver is John 13. So right under that, John 13. We're going to look at that tonight, so I'll skip that for now. Uh, we'll get into it in a second here. The table of the bread of the presence, right, John 6.35. Of course, there's a lot of good verses in John 6 to pick from. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Can it get more explicit than that? No. So Jesus is the bread that we eat to get life and to get God's presence. Under the lampstand, right, John 8, 12. There Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall by no means remain in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light of life. If you have Jesus, you have the lampstand. You have the shining presence of the triune God as your life. So awesome. Under the incense altar, write John 17, the entire chapter, John 17. A lot of people recognize John 17 is, is Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he is praying for his people after his departure that they would be one, that they would be as one as the Trinity is one, and that people would believe when they see the believer's oneness. So that's his high priestly prayer. He's interceding on behalf of us. Okay, and then under the Holy of Holies, this whole section with the ark, um, the best verse is probably John 14, 20. So write John 14, 20. That verse says, In that day of resurrection, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. So in the day of resurrection, we have the reality of the Holy of Holies where God is in man and we are dwelling in God. So there's a mutual dwelling place. So pretty amazing, right? Pretty amazing. John structures his gospel around this reality. Jesus is every item in the tabernacle. John is out to prove it. In about 90 AD, he's like, dude, I'm going to write a gospel for the ages. So people know Christ is the reality of every item in the tabernacle. So awesome. Oh, man, there's so much I want to say about this, this uh, picture here. Um, I think we're just going to skip it, though, because I'm running low on time already. All right, let's go on to number two here, back on your outline. Actually dive into the labor. Isn't that awesome? John wrote his gospel to show you Jesus is the tabernacle. In two years from now, if I knock on your door, I want you to be able to tell me that. Jesus is the reality. How do I know that? John 1.14, John 1.29, John 13, John 6.31, or 6.35. Anyways, just rattle through it. Okay, let's go on to number two here on your outline. Let's read two all together. Ready, set, go. All right, function. Location, content of the labor. We're going to see all that in these verses. Let's have the brothers on 18, sisters on 19, all together on 20. Bros, ready, set, go. You shall also make a labor of bronze, with its base of bronze, for one When they go into the tent of meeting,
Okay, so in verse 18, at the end of the first line, circle washing. If you do it how I do it, at the end, you'll have a nice kind of uh, um, nice correspondence in all these verses with your, your pen mark. So if you circle it, if you actually circle it, I know some people say circle it and you don't circle it or you underline it. Circle it. Circle it. Okay, then we'll see there's some correspondence in the, the future verses. Okay, line two, underline, put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Underline, put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. That's its location. And then underline right after that, put water in it. That's its content. So in this verse, we have the function for washing, the location in between the altar and the tabernacle. And uh, the content is water. So we'll, we'll get into the spiritual significance of this uh, as we go through this. But that is the function, location, and content of the labor full of spiritual significance. Somehow it's going to show us Christ. We'll see in just a second. Okay, let's go on to three. Let's read this all together. Ready, set, go. The labor of bronze signifies the washing power of the wow. life-giving spirit for our gaining salvation and priestly service. Okay, this point is so powerful. If you get point three, you'll see the crucial significance of the labor. Like we're saying, it's the secret. Without the labor, nothing in the tabernacle works. Okay, first point, though, is the labor of bronze typifies the washing power, the washing power of the life-giving spirit. The fact that the labor comes after the altar, the altar is Christ on the cross, the labor is Christ as the spirit in resurrection. So the labor comes out of the experience of the altar. After Christ crucified, in resurrection, he became something. Let's see what he became in this first verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Ready, set, go. All right, we got to read that again with a little more washing power going on. The last Adam. This is one of the top verses in the entire Bible. One of the top verses in the entire Bible. Christ in resurrection. Christ is the last Adam on the cross. In resurrection, he became the life giving spirit. The spirit's job, 24-7, his job description is to give you life. Is to give you life. And in the Bible, water always typifies the spirit. Pretty much, you could just say the spirit. It's the flowing triune God, but in essence, it's the spirit. Water in the Bible typifies the spirit. And the reason Christ became the spirit is because it's not enough just to have your sins forgiven. That happened at the altar. That's done. So why do we need another washing with water? Well, we're going to see in this point, the Spirit's job is, is the washing of regeneration to totally renew you as a new man and uh, totally reconstitute you with the life of Christ, transform you into His image, and make you His counterpart. This is a much more salvation than the judicial redemption accomplished by Christ on the cross. And the problem is, countless Christians are circling the altar. They never detach themselves from the altar. They stay at the altar. The altar's job is to get rid of the, the, uh, the sin in your life that is frustrating you um, from being one with God. But then the amazing thing is the very next thing is a, another washing. Well, this washing we're going to see is the washing of regeneration, and it includes every item in the tabernacle after that. And the thing is, if you look back at Exodus 30, it says, if you don't go to the altar, I mean, if you don't go to the laver, 
you can't access any other part of the tabernacle. It says, when they go into the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. If you try and enter the tabernacle without hitting the laver, then you will experience spiritual death. And we'll see what that means uh, in a little bit. So what is the washing power? What is the washing power? Okay, that's the water in the labor. It's to wash us. Okay, let's look at Titus 3.5. Let's read this. Ready, set, go. Circle the word washing. And then underline regeneration and renewing. So this verse uses, uh, this verse for washing uses the exact same word for laver in the Old Testament. This is the exact same Greek word, laver. And so Paul's concept is, there's something called the laver of regeneration. Another interesting thing is, the word for regeneration here is not the normal word for regeneration. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. And you can write below this, Matthew 19.28. That's the only other place this Greek word is used in the New Testament. And in Matthew 19, 28, it's talking about, the Lord is talking to the 12 apostles. He says, in the restoration, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's something the Bible calls the restoration. And what that is, is when Christ will return to earth, he will physically be here reigning as king, and the earth will experience a radical restoration to its original condition pre-fall in Genesis 3. And there's all kind of verses in the Old Testament talking about this. There's a verse that says, in the restoration, the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. Isn't that a restoration? I mean, you can get a little light from the moon at night, but it says the light of the moon will shine like the light of the sun. And then it says, the light of the sun will shine seven times brighter. What a restoration! And then it says, another verse in Isaiah says, the desert shall blossom and people will be farming the deserts. Can you believe that? This is truly going to happen. The earth will experience a radical restoration and, re and uh, restoring to the original condition. There will be an earthly paradise. Christ will be king and the earth will be amazing. It will be restored to its original condition. Now, the amazing thing is Paul takes that concept and says, before that happens, outwardly, Physically, it's actually going on in your soul currently, spiritually. You are under a restoration project. Christ is restoring you. He's restoring you. And that restoration is a washing. The more the life-giving Spirit flows within us, restores us, washes us, it's washing away the dirt of the natural man, the dirt of the world, the, the accumulation of, of filth and grime and sediment. All of that that came in through Adam, think about it, 6,000 years of accumulated layers of dirt, filth, sediment. The Spirit is washing within some people on this earth and restoring them. Restoring the image of God. Restoring the original luster, the shine. This is taking place within our spirit. Nobody can see it. But we want to be in this ongoing process today. This is what Paul calls, calls the washing of regeneration. Now, the washing, uh, this is amazing. You've got to love the Lord. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody's seen a power washer. Sometimes you just, you know, just, 
I mean, just abrasive. You know, you're just hot. You know, you got some nasty brick wall, and you're just, you know, you're just, you're power washing. The Lord does not power wash anybody. That would hurt. The Lord's washing, we'll see at the end, is very gentle, yet thorough. It's very thorough, very detailed, but it's very gentle and shepherding and soothing and wiping and comforting and uh, enlivening. So the Lord does a thorough washing, but it's not like an abrasive power washing. So with that, we should open all of our being to the Lord and say, Lord, wash me. Wash away the dirt of the old man. Wash away the dirt of this world. We'll see what that means in a second. Okay, I want to give you all one example of a restoration project that I found that is so tight. So um, Leonardo da Vinci, does anybody know who he is? I hope you do. If you don't, you need to Wikipedia him tonight. Yeah, catch up to date. He was in the 1500s. He was one of the greatest painters in the world. Mona Lisa is his famous painting. You'll probably know that one. He only has 14 oil paintings known. Only 14 oil paintings can be attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. He has sketches and all other stuff, but only 14 paintings. So he did this painting called Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World. It's a painting of Christ, supposedly. But it's a painting of Christ. And um, he painted this in 1510. And somebody bought it, and, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, so this is an amazing painting. And it, it got lost for over 150 years. And during that 150 years period, somebody had bought it, and then it had got, um, think about it, um, uh, dirt gradually accumulated, oil, tarnish, um, all this stuff accumulated on it. Someone tried to do a restoration on it and painted over it and made it worse. And so in 1900, it resurfaced. And when it resurfaced in 1900, nobody knew it was a Leonardo da Vinci painting anymore because it looked that bad. Then in 1958, get this, somebody bought it thinking it was just, they bought it at an, an estate auction with like 10 paintings. They paid 45 pounds for the whole thing, which is equivalent $1,400 today. Not a lot of money if you're buying a Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, then get this. So, um, they, since it was so tarnished, they gave it to this uh, professional restorer, and she did a seven-year restoration project on it, not knowing it was a Leonardo da Vinci project when she began, not knowing it was a Leonardo da Vinci painting when she began. But she started doing a high-profile, detailed work. Uh, she she uh, took off the tarnish, um, put all these, this, this washing oil, the solution, to strip the old sediment layers off of it. Get this. It was so corroded uh, the painting had crackled. In fact, the whole frame had cracked, and somebody had put plaster on the back of the painting. And then it got so dirty that the whole painting was crackled. And I don't know if you've ever seen like a, a super dry ground when it just cracks and the mud's kind of curling up on all the edges. Have, has anybody seen that? That's what the painting looked like. It was so out of shape, so dusty, so dirty, so crackly. So the first step was to wash off the old varnish. That took a long time. Then the second step was for an entire year. Get this. She dismantled the painting paint chip by paint chip. Talk about a detailed restoration. It took a whole year. She dismantled every single crackly curved up paint chip and applied another process to soften it, smooth it out. Then she reassembled it. She reassembled it. And then she touched up a lot of the paint. Of course, this was also very hard because she's doing this master painting. And during this process, she starts getting a little sinking suspicion that this is more than just some cheap painting in an estate auction. And she calls in these people, and turns out 
This is the 15th ever discovered oil painting by Leonardo da, Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, so she's like, oh my goodness. And so she does a seven-year project on it, totally restores it. You should go look on, online tonight. They've got it before and after. It's amazing. Salvador Mundi with a T. Salvatore Mundi. Okay, then in 2013, 2005 was the beginning of the restoration project. Two, 2013, it goes on display in the London, um, I think of the National Gallery in London, you know, world famous painting museum. Originally bought in 1958 for $1,400. Sold in 2013 for $128 million. You think restoration makes a difference? That's 91,000 times more than what was paid in 1958. 91,000 times more value. Okay, God is not doing a seven-year restoration project in you. God is doing a lifelong restoration project in Jason Rodriguez. Defiled, dirty, paint chip by paint chip of the natural man. God doesn't want to throw away those paint chips. God likes the original image. It's his image. He doesn't want to trash the painting. He wants to restore it to its original luster, glory, and value in his eyes. Because of this, he's coming into your spirit as a life-giving spirit. He's seeping into your mind how you think, how you view the world, how you value things. Maybe your education, maybe your popularity, maybe your friendships. And he's soaking, and he's soaking, he's washing. He's that solution that's stripping the layers of sediments of old Adam. And he's taking one paint chip, your thought life, and he's soaking it with the Spirit. He's softening it. He's re replacing it. He's touching it up. He's not changing the image. The image does not need to be changed. We were created in the image of God. But due to the fall, we've got 6,000 years of accumulated dust and dirt and sediment from the fall. Christ is washing all of that away as the life-giving Spirit in your spirit. Amen. And when the Lord is done with, with you... Ephesians 2.10 says God will pull off the, the covering and display for eternity the masterpiece of God. And the universe will gasp at us expressing the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? This process is going on right now in your spirit. No matter how dirty you are, no matter how defiled you feel from this earth, we need to trust in the washing process of the life-giving spirit. All right, we got to speed on ahead. Don't you like that example? So tight. If someone's going to spend seven years to restore Leonardo da Vinci, how thoroughly and detailed and uh, actively is Christ going to be operating to restore his creation? That's us. Awesome. Okay, let's go on to 1 Corinthians 6.11. Let's read this all together. Ready, set, go. Okay, un double underline were, fourth word. These things were, some of you. If you go back and look at the first, I think, two, three verses right before this, you'll see a lot of kind of peoples, not a lot of actions. So it's one thing to do a sin. It's, one, it's another thing to be that kind of sinner. Do you all get the difference? So if I do something, I mess up, I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. That's, that's one thing. Of course, sin is sin, so we need to confess it and get cleansed. 
It's another thing to do that sin so repeatedly, so habitually, so continuously, that eventually you would just call me that kind of person. So the washing of the blood only takes care of what we do. It does not take care of what you are. The blood only takes care of sins, actions, offenses. We need the life-giving spirit as the washing of regeneration to take care of what we are. This verse says you could have been the worst kind of person living in the worst kind of things habitually, but you were washed. That's not the washing of the blood. Look at the end. It says you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were washed in the Spirit. This is the washing of regeneration by the life-giving Spirit. This is not the washing of the blood for our sins. This is the washing of our being with the Spirit to make us a new creation. So tight, so tight. All right, let's go on to the next two verses, Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. Let's read these. Ready, set, go. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. All right, let's read Romans 7, 6. Ready, set, go. Okay, so these two verses have the word uh, renewed and newness of spirit. So we need to be renewed. That's the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It'll make us a new man. And we need to be new in our service. So for the internship, for those, who are y'all, for those of y'all who are doing the summer internship, <clears throat> we're going to be highly stressing this washing process. Because actually we cannot serve God unless we're in this washing process. Which means the washing is just the enjoyment of Christ as the Spirit. So we need to constantly be in this enjoyment of the Spirit. Otherwise, our service will result in spiritual death. That's what it said in Exodus 30. And we've had the experience, I've had the experience on a day, trying to serve God, not in this enjoyment of the fresh-flowing spirit. You know what it results in? The more I serve, the more I die. And we've had people do the whole summer internship. And at the end, they're dead. They're dead at the end. So we need to prioritize the enjoyment of Christ as the spirit. Otherwise, the more we serve, the more we get depressed and discouraged and burnt out and anyways it's a priority we're going to be emphasizing this summer we need to stay in the joy in the enjoyment enjoyment of this spirit okay let's go on to the last point point four here we'll be done in just a little bit uh let's read four ready set go how to remain in the continual experience of the washing of the labor okay so point three is really emphasizing the what What is the washing? It's the washing of regeneration. It's making you a new man. It's enlivening your service, so you're serving a newness of spirit. Um, Point four is the how. The how. Now, if you don't know the how, as great as the three is, as great as three, the what is, not going to make any difference. So how can we remain in this experience? Let's read Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Ready, set, go. That he might sanctify her. Okay, the way is the word. So circle washing again, and then underline of the water and the word. This word again is laver, exact same Greek word, as we saw in Titus and in Exodus. The laver of water in the word. Where is the water? Where is the life-giving spirit? Where do you get this washing experience? It's in the word. It's in the word. Now, Colleen asked a great question 
last night uh, at our prayer meeting, because somebody prayed, uh, this Greek word is rhema. Somebody prayed about rhema. Lord, we want your rhema. So anytime you come across the word, word, in the New Testament, it's either logos or rhema. Two different Greek words, logos or rhema. Logos, you could basically more or less say is this. It's the constant word that never changes, a.k.a. it's basically the Bible. This is logos. Rhema is when the Lord takes the logos that you've read and applies it to you in an instant experience. So you may be doing something and the Lord speaks, re-speaks that word to you with fresh power, with new light, with enlivening, and he applies it to your very situation. Great example is in Deuteronomy 8, for thousands of years was the word, man shall not live by bread alone, but on everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, and all of a sudden, that logos became rhema to him. And so when he quotes it in Matthew 4, 4, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every rhema that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the word we live on spiritually is not just the thing we read for information. It's the word the Spirit speaks to us for our present transformation. Logos is information. Rhema is transformation. So we want the Lord speaking to us based on the word. That is the word that washes us. It's not just the word we know that we've read a million times. It's when the Lord takes that word and speaks it with your name on it. He personalizes it. That's when you get the washing experience. So information versus transformation, logos versus rhema. Now I want to read to you a Napoleon quote. You know, Napoleon basically conquered the world, and then he was exiled. And when he was on this island called Elba, he had a lot of time to think about life and uh, have deep thoughts. And so you can go online and look at this. He has these amazing quotes about the divinity of Christ, about the nature of the Bible. I don't know how he got there. But listen to this. This is what he said. Napoleon was enjoying some rhema. Listen to this. That Bible on the table is a book to you. It is far more than a book to me. It speaks to me. It is, as it were, a person. Napoleon Bonaparte was experiencing rhema. This is not a book. Napoleon said, this is, as it were, a person speaking to me. If you have had that experience, you're enjoying rhema. When you're reading in the Word, and all of a sudden the Lord speaks, Shalin, blah, 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 you know, dot, dot, dot. That is rhema. And that Word enlivens us, it refreshes us, fills us with the Spirit, and washes all the sediment of dirt out of our being. Praise the Lord. Okay, now you may, be, you may be worried. You know, Kyle, I read the Bible a lot, and I don't remember anything I read. You know, we're doing our Bible reading. It's going fast-paced. Okay, great example of this is, you know, in China back in the day, they used to wash rice in these wicker baskets. And what they would do is they would take these wicker baskets full of rice down to the river, and they would dunk them. They would dunk them to wash the rice. And so the, the rice would get clean. And they would pull the wicker basket up, and what would happen to all the water? It just seep out back to the river. Okay, so one time somebody asked this older brother, he said, hey, I read the Bible, I don't remember anything. So what's the point? You know, I read the Bible, I get discouraged because later in the day, I can't remember anything. I can't remember the verse, can't remember the reference. I see T-Walk and he's spitting, you know, and he's, man, he's just quoting and he knows Matthew 4.4, he knows Deuteronomy 8.3. And I'm like, man, I can't retain any of that. I can't retain any of that knowledge. Okay, well, this brother said, he told that story about washing rice and he said, that's like your being when you read the Word. You're dipping your soul into the flowing spirit in the Word. 
And yes, the water's not retained, but you're washed. You come away washed. And so don't focus so much on retaining information. You want to capture all the water? No. We just want to get washed by the Spirit in the Word. So we should, we should uh, pray whenever we come to the Bible, Lord, speak to me. Just pray that simple prayer. Lord, speak to me. It'll make a big difference in your reading. Okay, last verse here, and I'm really just going to uh, point out a couple things, and all your reading on the back is going to be on John 13. So if you're going to bounce when I sit down, please take the reading and read it. It may be the best thing you've read all semester. I'm serious. Please take the reading and reading it if you walk out the door as soon as I finish talking. I just want to make that clear, so please read it. Okay, so John 13 is about foot washing, and the whole reading is about foot washing. Now, the thing you got to catch is foot washing is not merely nor mainly physical. Let me say that again. Foot washing in John 13, as revealed by the Lord, is not merely physical. That means it is physical. We, sometimes we would practice foot washing. If you've done that before, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not merely physical. There's something more. And it's not mainly physical. The reason the Lord talked about foot washing is because he's not worried about, you know, you going to get a pedicure. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. And I got three ways to prove that to you in these verses. So look at verse 7, John 13, 7. Jesus answered and said to him, he's washing Peter's feet, what I am doing you do not know now. Now, if this is mainly and merely physical, Peter goes, uh, I know exactly what you're doing now. You're washing my feet. I mean, right? I mean, Peter was a fisherman, but he at least knew what was going on. So Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not know now. He goes, no, I do know now. You're washing my feet, and it feels great. Keep doing it, you know? Move on to the left one. This reminds me of in John 16 when the Lord says, I have many things to say to you now, but you can't bear them now. But when the Spirit comes, he will remind you and tell you what really was going on and what I said. So this is hint number one, that foot washing is more than just a physical act. Okay, point number two to prove this. In verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall by no means wash my feet forever. Jesus answered him, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. If Jesus doesn't wash your feet, do you have no part with him? No. I mean, if you're talking just physical, so this is another hint that there's a spiritual meaning to foot washing. Proof three is in verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed has no need except to wash his feet, but is wholly clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas. And what he's not saying is Judas forgot to take a shower this morning. He's saying Judas is not spiritually clean. He's not morally clean because he's a false disciple. So you guys are regenerated. That's what the bath is. Y'all are clean because of your regeneration, but not all of y'all are clean. Judas is a false disciple. So here again, it's a spiritual significance. Okay, I got a lot more I wish I could say, but I'm definitely way out of time. So split up now. Let's do the reading. The reading is really good. If you're going to leave, please do the reading later. You'll really like it. Okay, let's go ahead and split up.